Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's show, we have with us Manu Raju, Chief Congressional Correspondent for CNN, and Abby Phillip, Political Correspondent for CNN. Both of you, welcome to That Said. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start, if I, if you don't mind, because we have a lot of students that listen in on these programs, to, to have them understand how you got to be where you are. What road did you travel to, to this point in your careers? So Abby, Manu, whoever of you wants to talk first, please feel free. Uh, okay, I'll get, get started. Uh, it's fun to be here with you, Michael and Manu. Um, you know, I, I started out wanting to be a journalist when I was in college. And um, at that time, that seemed relatively late in life because a lot of the kids I was, um, I I went to Harvard and the overachievers at Harvard um, all were the editors of their high school newspapers and um, knew from birth that they wanted to be journalists. I discovered that um, about halfway through my collegiate time. But um, by the time I did that, I, uh, you know, was really just focused on trying to find a way into the industry at a time that, you know, the industry was a little bit in turmoil, I think, you know, journalism was sort of figuring itself out, you had a lot of newspapers shrinking, advertising dollars declining, which is still happening today. And um, I ended up at Politico, uh, which is where I met Manu, (laughs) actually, Uh, funny story. Um, But but I was, uh, unlike Manu, who was a seasoned reporter, I was a little baby reporter. And, um, but that's where I started my career. (laughs) It was a really great place, actually, to do that, because Politico is a really fast-paced newsroom environment. Um, it was, it's really kind of, uh, you know, sink or swim, <laughs> if you were to be honest. Um, but I learned a lot about Washington. I learned, learned a lot about politics there. And then from there, it, I would say it was more of like a windy road, I think. I took a, I took a few chances and um, made some unexpected changes in my career. I left Politico and moved to New York to work at ABC News um, I, just to kind of see if I liked sort of the, the visual medium at all. Um, I moved back to DC. I went to work at the Washington Post and I stopped covering politics. I was covering general assignment news and kind of just you know, whatever came across our desk. And then I came back to political journalism covering the 2016 election and then came to CNN. So, I mean, I think it was a little bit of a unconventional path. I think often you don't see, um, I, I didn't know that many people who had kind of gone back and forth between television and print. And so there were definitely some scary moments in there of not being sure if that was, those were the right moves to make, but I think ultimately it turned out okay. <laughs> Yeah, I guess the lesson here is that there really aren't right moves to make. That you can, to use Paul McCartney's song, The Long and Winding Road, you can move yeah. where you are now in a variety of ways and to not obsess about, am I doing everything correctly from the outset? Yeah. So it's, it's a good life lesson, I think. Manu, how, how, did, how did you end up um, on Capitol Hill yelling at reporters, re- re- yelling at congressional people. You're on mute. There we go. Uh, It's more like Michael, it's more like they're yelling at me more than I'm yelling (laughs) at them. Um, You know, I sort of fell into it, to be honest with you. I mean, I kind of ended up this way, uh, you know, not intending uh, to um, end up in Washington, but it sort of just, my path kind of led me here. You know, I was you know, as a as an Indian American kid growing up in the suburbs with uh, Indian immigrants, uh, there was obviously a, a, a push by uh, my parents to either become a doctor or engineer, uh, neither of which were really my calling. <laughs> um, you know, I'm not, I didn't do that well in chemistry, which is probably why I ended up becoming a journalist. So, um, <laughs> so um, you know, so I, uh, I went to University of Wisconsin. Um, and uh, in 
actually, I went to get a business degree and I actually did get a business degree because I thought I was like, hey, I like, you know, business is fun. Maybe I want to go into business and, you know, something. So I actually pursued the business route. But in college, I said, you know, my brother, uh, when he was in college, he wrote for a student paper for, you know, he wrote, covered, covered sports and he really enjoyed it. And so I said, you know what, maybe I should try to do that too. So I'm a big sports fan. I decided to write for my paper just out of, you know, for the hell of it, basically, and meet people, do something different. And I got more involved and I became the sports editor of my paper. I took a journalism internship in college and a local NBC affiliate in LA. My brother was living there at the time, so I slept on his couch for the entire summer. Um, and, uh, you know, came back to Madison and I was like, you know, this is interesting. I mean, I'll consider this a little further. And I took a job at the local NBC affiliate in Madison in my, um, in my uh, senior year, second semester on the assignment desk on the weekends. And I got more interested in it, but I was still getting, I was still getting a business degree. And by the time I was about to graduate, I was like, you know what, I kind of want to be a journalist. Uh, but the good thing about being a journalist is you don't really need a journalism degree. In fact, you definitely do not need a journalism degree. Um, so um, I got my, um, you know, to get uh, your first job, you kind of, you need clips of your work and published work as in print, uh, especially in most of my career has been in print. And so in 2002, when I graduated, I, I moved out to DC, as I said, kind of not intentionally, I mean, not because that was my uh, destiny or what I was planning to do it for years. I only did it really because my folks had left the Chicago area when I was in college and they moved to the DC area. My dad had changed yeah. jobs. and. So I said, you know, live around my live with my parents and look for look for work. Um, so I got my first job in Washington, uh, writing for an environmental trade publication covering environmental policy in 2002. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about government or politics or policy or really much about reporting either. Um, but as Abby was saying, you kind of sink or swim in this business. And you know, I. I spent a few years, that was my real education in covering Washington, covering government. Um, and then from there, I took a second job at Congressional Quarterly, uh, which uh, is also an insidery subscriber-based publication covering Congress. And uh, so I got my education covering Congress. And then from there, I went to the Hill newspaper uh, covering I got more, more of a political reporting job. So I kept learning more about different areas of coverage through my, my career. Uh, I spent a couple of years at the Hill newspaper, and then from there I went to Politico in 08, where I later met Abby, and I spent um, seven years there at Politico covering uh, primarily the Senate. Um, so that, you know, from there I started to do more television. Uh, I was doing you know, TV hits for various shows as a guest on various shows, including CNN and other, elsewhere. And I decided, you know, this is, TV thing's kind of interesting. I like it. In 2014, I moderated a congressional debate in the Senate race in Colorado and gubernatorial race in Colorado. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was a sole moderator for that debate. And I was like, you know what, I want to, I like being on camera, asking questions, getting people to make news on camera. I think I want to try to pursue this. And, you know, eventually a spot opened up in CNN. I talked to them in 2015 uh, to cover the Hill. And, you know, so now I've been here for five years. So it's been a, uh, it's been a, quite a, wild ride and i had all black hair before i started cnn that is true and now my hair is uh you know i would say half gray but some people would say maybe 75 percent gray see and it's funny because i thought as a rabid chicago bears and university of wisconsin football fan that's what made your hair gray <laughs> well that too it's more about that would make me lose my hair actually that's, my hair. that's right <laughs> The listening audience, Mano and I exchange emails when I, my beloved New York Giants football team loses and his Chicago Bears sort of plot along, um, each <laughs> of us lamenting the fact that we don't root for uh, Pittsburgh Steelers or, or, or somebody that wins. So anyway. It's been a rough few decades. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So I guess to use the CNN language, breaking news. Maru, can you start yeah. by telling us what the status of the stimulus bill negotiations is? Yeah, you know, that's the, that's basically what I've been covering all day long, all week long. Um, and uh, it's changing by the minute uh, in terms of the timing and the back and forth and everything. I think the overall 
uh, it's looking like there's still optimism that they will get a deal. In fact, Mitch McConnell apparently just said they're quote unquote close, but you know, they've been close for um, 48 hours now. So uh, there are outstanding issues they're trying to hammer out. I mean, this is a major deal, a $900 billion bill. There are significant issues they still are trying to sort out, including whether to pare back the Federal Reserve's lending authority, which Republicans have won. Democrats want more money for states and cities that go through FEMA. Um, there are some other issues for venues, performance art venues uh, that are being closed, whether more money should be given to them to help with their uh, situations. Things like that are still being negotiated, including how to structure uh, $600 in direct payments for individuals uh, that will be part of this proposal. So a lot of this bill language, um, that's where we are right now. The leadership, uh, the four big four leaders, Pelosi, McCarthy, Schumer, um, uh, and uh, McConnell are still going back and forth. The question now is when will they get a deal and can they get it done and get it out by Friday when the government is slated to shut down because they want to tie this to the government funding bill to keep the government open past Friday. There's a discussion the Democrats are trying to get it done immediately don't pass another short-term measure to keep the government open for another few days republicans want another few days to negotiate so that is the source of the disagreement right now so we'll see the next 24 hours 48 hours will be significant i think they'll get a deal but the it'll be might be painful until we get there so. right and, and abby what are you hearing from like the mnuchins um and the president's inner circle about the deal are they for a deal are they against the deal do they have Drop dead issues that if it's in the deal, they they will not sign on. What what's what's the sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue side of the discussion looking like? Well, honestly, you don't really hear a whole lot from the White House side of things, which is actually a big difference in this set of negotiations compared to the previous one when Mnuchin was deeply involved in it. I think the White House has kind of stepped back on this. Um, you know, one thing they did signal a few weeks ago was that they were in favor, actually, of direct payments, but um, uh, I'm not sure that that really had an influence one way or another in the congressional process. I think this has really gone a more traditional way where you have the two chambers negotiating within their, you know, Democrats with Democrats, Republicans with Republicans, and then and then with each other. Um, and you've heard very little from the president, but actually that could be a really good thing. I think so far you haven't seen any signs that the president would try to, um, you know, put any kind of, you know, landmines into the situation by urging Republicans to reject any um, sort of bill structure. Um, I think he was mostly concerned about the checks wanting to have another set of checks with his name on it. Um, you know, whether it actually has his name on it or not, I think is a little bit of a separate topic, but that's actually um, something that Democrats want. Democrats also wanted direct payments. So, um, so I think that ended up not being much of a sticking point. And I think the, as long as the president remains silent for the time being, uh, things are going to continue to move along. And, um, you know, I think they're just they're just staying out of it. I mean, it's also happening, by the way, at, at a time that he's a lame duck. So they, you know, in some ways, it's actually a little bit of an acknowledgement that um, that he's not going to be in office come January 20th. This process in the last few weeks has really moved forward without him. Mm -hmm. So I want to stay on the on the hill. We've got so much to talk about. I'm going to sort of jump around a little bit from topic to topic. Staying on the hill, though, for a minute. But Mano, you wrote recently that House conservatives are still pressing, notwithstanding the Electoral College vote, they are still pressing for a floor fight on um, whether or not uh, Joe Biden has properly won this election. And we hear yesterday from Johnson out of Wisconsin and others that maybe some senators may join in the fray as well. What, do, what, do, what are you hearing about it from the hillside and then Abby, what do, what do you, if anything, are hearing about it from Meadows and, and, the, and the people who are advising on, on, the, on the Pennsylvania Avenue side of things? Um, so there are a group of House conservatives who will definitely object on January 6th. And, you know, the way that, you know, of course it works is that electoral, the joint session of Congress meets, 
uh, and and the states go through their electoral votes. And if a House member objects and they're joined by one senator, it will lead to a debate in each chamber, and then the vote the Senate and the House would have to vote about uh, whether to um, uh, essentially agree to the merits of that objection. So this effort to overturn the election on January 6th has no chance. I mean, there's no way it's going to succeed. Um, the Republican leadership in the Senate clearly does not want this uh, to happen. Uh, they uh, think this is a bad vote. Mitch McConnell made that clear in a conference call with his members this week. He said, he said, you know, they're either going to have to choose between siding with Trump or siding with the will of the voters. And that's a position no Republican wants to be in. So they are urging the Republican senators not to join with House members to object and force them to cast his vote. Uh, Ron Johnson did yesterday rule out being part of that objection, uh, but others have not. Uh, Josh Hawley, Missouri, has not ruled that out. Neither has Rand Paul. Uh, neither has Kelly Leffler of Georgia, assuming she wins her runoff race on January 5th. Um, so, um, you know, and also Tommy Tuberville, the Alabama, incoming Alabama senator, has indicated that he might also object. So there are several senators who could do that and put him in a tough spot. So the, yesterday I talked to Mo Brooks, uh, who's leading the effort on the Republican side in the House. He plans to push forward, object. So does Jim Jordan. Uh, and what Mo Brooks said to me is the Republicans should not be part of the quote, surrender caucus. So you can see the language coming in. They're siding with the president's rhetoric. They want to make a show of it. And they're not going to succeed, but they could put some of their members, their fellow Republicans, in an awkward spot. So, Abby, what, why, why, what, what, what's the thinking? Uh, assuming there is thinking, what's what's the thinking besides you know tantruming? Well, you know, I I think I was going to say in response to your question that. Um, the thing to keep in mind is that this is coming from the president himself. There's no, you know, White House strategy around this. It's um, it's actually the president really doing this a lot on his own, making his own phone calls, you know, tweeting his own messaging, kind of doing his own thing um, because this is what he wants to see. And um, there's no doubt that he knows that this is... Um, I mean, at the very least, he knows that it's unlikely to be successful, but he uh, wants Republicans to, as Mo Brooks alluded to, not surrender, to, to sort of show some fight. And he wants to see that play out on January 6th. So, um, you know, I, I think there's one, one of the interesting things has been that even while the White House you'll see people like Kaylee McEnany going out there and um, on Sean Hannity every night and on Fox News and she's talking about rigged election and so on and so forth. The actual White House is, they're not really putting any sort of muscle behind this, you know? The president is the one picking up the phone and calling who he needs to call and thanking them for their support or threatening them or saying that he wants, um, you know, wants certain things to happen. He's doing this pretty much on his own. And, um, and I think that what you're seeing in, in Congress is going to be actually also members on their own wanting to show loyalty to the president and doing it in this way. Everyone knows that he's not going to be um, in the White House after January 20th. And people in the White House um, are operating in that way, no matter what the president says about the situation. So, you know, for whatever that's worth, I mean, it's going to be a show, but as Manu says, it's not going to go anywhere. And, and people are aware of that. No, but the, the, the interesting thing for me in thinking about this is that this is occurring at the same time as these Georgia Senate runoffs are, are taking place. And I'm wondering both as to the stimulus bill and as to this, you know, sort of faux fight on the floor of the Senate. What are the, 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 uh, what's the thinking about the impact of this? Is it, are these things being done in order to help Georgia? Is it being done irrespective of the impact it has on Georgia? How, how, how is, what's the thinking around it? I'd like both to hear from both of you. Uh, as yeah. I'll, 
you know, my, you know, Republicans realize that they need to pass something uh, for a variety of reasons, but helping the Georgia senators is a big reason uh, because uh, as Mitch McConnell said on a conference call yesterday, according to a source who was on it, who told me that McConnell said Kelly and David are getting hammered on the issue of direct payments. Uh, the two Democratic candidates have been on their airwaves blasting them for their failure on the stimulus over the last several months, not providing more direct assistance uh, to struggling Georgians. Uh, Mitch McConnell realizes that, and he told his conference as such. Uh, he said that multiple times on the call is becoming a big issue in the, in the Georgia Senate races. So, of course, the politics are going to play into this as well. But then the Democratic side, they're concerned, too, that if they don't win back the Senate, they may not get as good of a stimulus package in the new Congress as they might now. So, um, so you know, that's part of the thinking. They're, they got the Republicans, you know, where, you know, they are negotiating. Maybe they can get more now because who knows when the Dem Republicans will be willing to negotiate again. So, you know, that's playing out that way. And then in terms of just like the president's, you know, baseless claims about the election, I mean, that's an open question how that affects the Georgia race. I mean, we've, you know, reported a lot about how some the people are concerned, Republicans who are listening to him um, say, well, my vote doesn't matter. Why should I vote? I tend to think there'll still be high turnout. Um, whether people will be upset at the president's baseless claims or listen to him and uh, ultimately view that he has been aggrieved and they'll come out in numbers and save the Senate, you know, we'll, we'll see. I, you know, it's just so hard to know at the moment the impact that that may have on the race. Yeah, I think that that's, that's all right. And I mean, one thing, though, that does kind of um, strike out at you is when you see um, other Republican circuits going to Georgia to campaign down there, um, they are all parroting the president's comments about a stolen election, so on and so forth. So there's a sense that um, that this is what Republican voters who are, are um closely aligned with President Trump want to hear about. And they want to know that people who are campaigning on their behalf also believe um, in these false claims of a rigged election. So they are really leaning into it on the ground in Georgia. And perhaps it's a, um, it's a turnout mechanism. I mean, you're hearing, there were some questions early on about, okay, how are they going to argue that this whole thing was rigged and then want people to come out and vote? And you are hearing them, um, you know, people like Sarah Palin and Tommy Tuberville, when they're making the case, they're saying, you know, we've got to show out, show out in large numbers so that they can't steal this one too. And that, so that's kind of the language that they're using. Um, I don't think that anything that the president's doing is related to these Georgia races. I mean, the fact of the matter is that the president is not acting, he, his behavior is not related to his desire to sort of solidify a GOP majority in the Senate. Like it's all about his own sense of um, grievance and his desire to, uh, to claim that he didn't lose. But I think when you look at other Republicans on Capitol Hill and, um, and the ones who are going down to Georgia to campaign, they are trying to navigate this terrain where the Trump base believes the election was rigged. Um, it fires them up um, and then uh, using that to actually turn them out for a special election. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting double edge there about yelling it's fraudulent and then asking people to come vote in a, in a, in a fraudulent process. So we can stay on the Hill all day. I've got loads of questions about what does it mean that we're going to have so many women in Congress, 17 non-incumbent Republican women elected? What about progressives and moderates and the Democratic side? Will they all work together? I, I don't know if you want to take a minute on that, but I'd love to hear about that, but turn quickly to the Biden administration to be and, and talk about that. So do you guys want to just make a stab at those, yeah, I'll, those I'll, you know, on the on the Republican women's side, that has definitely been a, a really interesting uh, story about what happened in the elections. Republicans were not expected yeah. to do well uh, in the House races, but suddenly Nancy Pelosi has a very very narrow majority, and it's, it's even narrower now because she's going to lose three of her members to the Biden administration. Now that Deb Holland now is going to take the Interior Secretary job, assuming she gets confirmed, uh, but. 
you know, the big reason for the Republican success is they had good candidates and good recruiting and uh, they were able to diversify. I mean, the Republican conference right now is very homogenous. Uh, it is uh, overwhelmingly white and male. Uh, but now they have a, a crop of uh, women candidates and more uh, women members and uh, uh, some more uh, diversity in their myth. So that is something they've been working on. They're certainly not anywhere near where their own leaders want them to be, but that has definitely improved. And on the Democratic side, I mean, that is going to be the constant issue for the next two years. How do you navigate progressives and moderates, especially um, in the House and the Senate? It's going to be narrowly divided. My guess is the progressives are going to be angry over the next two years because Biden is going to have to realize he has to work. He knows how this place works. He needs to get Republican support to get it into the Senate. And the House being so narrowly divided, it will almost push him to make sure that what can get done to the House can also get through the Senate because they'll need bipartisan support, support based probably in both chambers. So I think you might see a lot of angry and frustrated uh, folks on the left side of the caucus. Abby, what's your take? Yeah, I don't, I don't actually, I don't have a whole lot to, to add. I mean, I think, um, you know, the increased diversity on the Republican side is a major story. It's a, it's a major story, um, not just for Congress, but also for the um, post-Trump presidency and the future of the Republican Party. There's a lot of conversation among Republicans right now about, um, you know, what this shows about how you can match um, a sort of... Trump, Trumpy-ish message with better candidates, candidates who are less polarizing, who are more diverse, who can reach out to pockets of Hispanic and Black and um, and other, and Asian American communities that um, Republicans have had a harder time reaching. And um, I think there's actually a fair amount of optimism from the Republicans I've talked to about what that says for what they think they can do to. Um, to move forward, uh, you know, whether Trump is in the picture or not. Um, on the Democratic side, I was noting, um, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comments about Pelosi um, in the last day or so, where she talked about how Pelosi is, um, you know, she, she would love to see fresh blood, but she understands that Pelosi has a really tough job because she has to manage a caucus that includes a lot of conservative Democrats. And um, it's, a, it's an obvious acknowledgement, but coming from her, it seemed to reflect a recognition from someone who's a very powerful voice in the progressive caucus um, that these next two years are not going to be a progressive free-for-all, that there are a lot of um, conservative members among the Democrats and a very narrow majority, and they may need to um, fall in line for a little while longer if they want to get anything done. So I think that's just something to keep an eye on as we um, as we go forward. Just I think people are expecting a huge fight and there will be plenty of fights, trust me. I mean, they've shown that they are, are willing to push back, but to what extent um, do they recognize the, the, um, the challenges faced by Pelosi and um, do they cooperate with her more um, than you might otherwise expect? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether in both chambers there are consensus groups. Like on the Senate side, we saw in these negotiations, Warner and, and um, Manchin and others, and then Susan Collins and Murkowski trying to work together with a, a similar group, gang of eight-ish sort of gathering to work on both sides. Maybe we make some incremental progress. You've said, Abby, that the twin priorities of the Biden, Biden administration are controlling the pandemic and fixing the economy. To do that, you need consensus in, in, in some in some substantial way. Is there indications about how Biden is planning to go about trying to accomplish these objectives? Well, um, you know, I do, first of all, I mean, I think the Biden administration incoming is very cognizant that much of this needs to be done at an administrative level and, um, um, and within the executive branch. So that's 
one of the reasons that you've seen him choose, I mean, look, he was probably always going to choose a cabinet that was full of a bunch of very experienced technocrats who he happens to be friends with. So that's probably always, that was probably always going to be the case. But um, look, looking at his cabinet, you can see these are people who um, know how to run government. They are, they're very seasoned um, and they're preparing to do a lot of things at the executive level that don't even touch Congress. I mean, I don't know that especially when it comes to the pandemic, Congress, I don't want to say that they're irrelevant. They, I mean, they're a source of funding, but there's more of this is going to have to do with the relationship between the executive branch and the states. And I would say that they have, have already started that process of kind of reaching out to governors and opening lines of communication. And I think they see that as the clearest most important pathway to getting uh, the virus under control because it's it, it is a national disaster, but it's a state by state and local um, crisis happening in different ways all across the country. On the economy, though, I mean, I think they always view the pandemic as being first because they need to get that under control. On the economy, I think a little bit down the road. Um, you're probably going to see the Biden team trying to look at things like um, like infrastructure um, as a as a vehicle for um, the kind of stimulus that they that Democrats like to do. Um, and that might be necessary to help like jumpstart an economy, say, in the second quarter of 2021. Um, there will probably be a need for another attempt at a stimulus bill, but um, but I think there are going to be some long-term challenges for the economy that, yes, they're going to have to deal with Congress on. And you know what? I think there might be, just in the same way that you're seeing this being worked out, this process, it's been painful um, for this smaller stimulus bill, but it's being worked out, I think, through somewhat normal channels. You're seeing members like Warner and Manchin rise up to say, okay, we're the moderate voices, we can be the deal makers. Um, and I think that that actually, is a, um, that actually is a pattern that I think the Biden team would not be opposed to working with. You haven't seen them pushing back on things coming out of the Hill. I think it's because they think that what's the way that things are going right now, it's headed in a positive direction and it might ultimately be the way that um, these deals are gonna get struck in the future. And Mano, on, on your end, first, um, our, Abby mentioned the, the, the confirmation process, and we've heard pushback about whether um, Nira uh, Tannen makes it through, whether there's a waiver um, for, for the general Austin uh, for defense. What, what, in, in my experience, there's always, to put it in the worst of words, perhaps, a sacrificial lamb, some nomination that doesn't seem to make it through. Do we have a sense here about these confirmations or are any of them sort of dead on arrival or is this, this sort of posturing? Where does it stand? Well, look, it's, it's all, it's a good question because I, and it's also complicated by the fact that we don't know who's going to be in the majority next year, because that is, I mean, the biggest, uh, uh, most significant reason why Democrats want to be in the majority is they're in charge of, the committee process, they set the agenda, and they can confirm nominees. They can do that without Republican support. And uh, 50 votes can confirm a nominee under the filibuster rules of the Senate. Legislation still requires 60 votes. So even if they have a majority of 50 votes, unless they change the filibuster rules, which is highly doubtful that they'll do with the, that narrow majority, they can, you know, they can't really pass much without Republican support. On the nomination front, they can confirm whoever they want if they all stick together. So that's why that's really important. So it's uncertain how quickly we can move through the nomination process. So let's just assume that Republicans keep the majority. Um, there is, um, uh, New York Tandon has problems. I mean, she certainly does. And Lindsey Graham, who's chairman um, of the, who will be chairman of the Senate Budget Committee in a Republican majority, uh, told me this week that she would be a heavy lift to get confirmed. Now, does she become that sacrificial lamb? Maybe, but also the, there are Republicans and we believe that this, um, a, a, a president deserves to have his choices. So um, 
So there may be some deference given among a handful of Republicans. Maybe she gets through. We're really just way too early to know before the confirmation process really starts. Um, others like the national security picks likely will go through quicker. Graham also told me that he supports, he thinks that um, Tony Blinken to Secretary of State is a good choice. And he sits on Senate foreign relations. Uh, there's discussion about having his confirmation hearings before January 20th. We'll see if he gets confirmed on January 20th. It's common for at least a handful of nominees to get confirmed on day one. Others are less certain. Avril Haines uh, is DN, Director of National Intelligence. Uh, I spoke, spoke to Marco Rubio about her yesterday. He still he said he hasn't even thought about it yet. So, you know, there you go. So there's so it's uncertain how that may be dealt with. There are some that are more popular. Janet Yellen seems to she's seen that she's going to sail through for Treasury. Um, so, you know, it will be a case by case basis. Some will generate more opposition than others. Um, and a lot. And I'm in talking to senators about this over the last couple of days. It's clear that a lot of just have not really engaged on this process. Mm-hmm. Uh, the big question, I think Austin will get confirmed on the merits. He probably will get that waiver that's needed for someone who's not been in the military active duty for seven years. He retired in 2016. Um, he needs that waiver to serve as the, as the head of the Pentagon. Um, my sense is Democrats, they're not happy about it. They're squeamish about it. That's only been done twice in history, including for Mattis in 2017. My sense is they'll probably do it a third time here, uh, but the Biden team has its work cut out for him and Austin does too to convince them that he deserves the waiver. That's going to have to get approved by both chambers and he ought to get confirmed by the Senate. So, Right. When Mattis got the waiver, I mean, there were Democrats who said one and done, I'm never doing this again. And now yeah. they find themselves having to figure out how they walk those, those, those words back. Yeah. I'd like, to, I'd like to switch a little bit away from, from the Hill and, and the White House to ask about the media. Uh, I've talked to Jim Acosta and Brian Stelter previously on on this this show, and we, we've talked about sort of the five year war between Trump and and the media, and with Jen Psaki and others who we all know and have worked with, people are saying, well, maybe there's going to be a honeymoon, maybe there'll be you know sort of a, a different media White House relationship. Others have said, you know what, we really can't afford to look as if we're giving these guys a break after we are perceived to have given the Trump administration such a hard time. So how, how, do, you, how do you see it shaking out? I think that it's always going to be perceived as if the media is, is um, taking it easier on the Biden administration, in part because we're not dealing with the same level of, um, uh, you know, lies and, you know, craziness and disarray that the that characterized the Trump administration. So there's always going to be like that perception. And I think perhaps there are some people that are concerned about that. I mean, as journalists, we should we should have the same level of scrutiny for the Biden team as we had for the Trump team. But the reality is it's not going to be as difficult because they don't lie as much and they certainly don't lie intentionally as much. And um, you don't, you're not dealing with a principal who um, is constantly sort of throwing chum in the water to create chaos um, to obscure other things that are happening or, you know, for example, um, you know, launching a travel ban within the first days of the administration that hadn't even gone through a legal process and was being implemented in the dead of the night, leaving people stranded at the airports. I mean, things like that, I don't anticipate we will have to deal with with the Biden administration. So it's just two different situations. Um, They have a different approach. I think Democrats in general tend to have a little bit of a different approach to the media, especially someone like you know, Jen Psaki, and really, frankly, most of the people on the comms team who have a lot of experience dealing with the media, they're just, um, they have strategy, they um, understand that this is a relationship. And and they might try to um, exploit that relationship. And so it's important for journalists to guard against that, and make sure that there is, um, you know, sufficient skepticism in that relationship. So, um, but I mean, I think it's a little bit of a false equivalency, frankly. I just don't, I mean, I, I don't think that we will have to be fact-checking 
um, every one of the 30,000 lies told by the president, because while Joe Biden um, off, often says things that are not true, for, he actually is like, unlike a lot of politicians, he says the things that are not true all the time for all kinds of different reasons, um, but it's nowhere near the level of um, a President Trump. And so um, it's gonna it's gonna feel different, it's gonna be different, but it's not because we're going easy on him, it's because we're dealing with a different kind of administration. So Mono, let me, let me read you something. Kathleen Parker, writing an opinion piece in the, in the Post, writing to the comps team, she says, you're entering the line, talking to the, to, um, the, the president-elect's communications team. She writes to them saying, you're entering a lion's den thick with oversized ego. In, a, in fact, the largeness of their own celebrity status and the, keep, and the need to keep their contracts in a Trump-free industry, there is likely to be tougher than ever. Thus, you White House communications women, a word of advice, beware. Celebrity journalists have become the news and they have their own empires to protect. They won't remember that you once rubbed shoulders with them in makeup, forget that you were once friends because these journalists don't have friends in high places or any place else. They'll run you over if you stand between them and the news that must break on their watch. So that, that, that's sort of her, her, her take. And it's sort of like, what, what, do you, what do you think? Look, I don't necessarily disagree with that. I mean, I, um, you know, what is that? Of course, you know, you, just interrupt. Neither of you fit the description of ce- celebrity journalists who <laughs> don't remember well, you know, their friends. A, uh, is actually a celebrity journalist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, um, you know, one of my former bosses once said it's better to be feared than loved and I tend to agree with that I don't you know one of the things that I tried to um, counsel young aspiring journalists is you know your sources sure they can be your friends but they shouldn't be your best friends they shouldn't you know you can be I should say this you should be friendly with your sources and you should there's nothing wrong with having a nice relationship with someone but be cautious about making them your friends because like, you know, you don't want to get too cozy with your sources. You don't want to get too friendly with your sources because you're going to have to be critical in your coverage of your sources. And for me, the best way to develop trust uh, among people who I don't, who, who I cover um, is to be honest with them. You know, I'll be writing this negative story about their boss and Democrat or Republican I go to them and I tell them what I'm going to write and what I'm going to report and give them enough time to respond to my uh, my reporting. And if they have a comment, I will take it into consideration. I will reflect it in the story. Um, and but they should feel like they have enough had enough time to respond uh, one way or the other. The situation you don't want to get in is you feel like, oh, that's my buddy, and I can't write a bad story about him or her. Like that's like the last place you want to be as a reporter. And I don't think most reporters are like that. I think most reporters realize we have an important job. We're covering, you know, the leaders of our country and we have to be, hold them accountable. And, you know, we have to have a a, a trusting relationship with each other. Um, And that requires us being forthright about what we're going to report and them to be forthright about what's true and what's not. Where that relationship breaks down when one side lies to you about what you're reporting and says it's not true, not true, not true, and it is true, Um, or if the reporter is not honest about what they're going to report. So it requires a both back and forth for it to be a functional relationship. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. Uh, President Trump never attended the White House Correspondents' Dinner. I I attended it uh, a couple of times at uh, the invitation of, of CNN, and I quite enjoyed it where politicians and reporters were uh, sharing stories and, and, and creating friendships. President Trump didn't go for, for reasons known to him only. But when I think back on it, I think maybe sometimes, you know, maybe he's right. Maybe, maybe the politicians and the journalists shouldn't be socializing that much because to, to what you just said, Mano, what happens is if you develop a friendship and then all of a sudden you've got to write a negative story it's harder. It's harder. Yeah. And, and that's, I think the perception of that, those dinners 
you know, is not good either because I think the you know, the media suffers from a lack of trust uh, and, you know, large part by bad faith actors who say things that aren't true about the media. But also, you know, that's what you want to develop trust uh, from your readers and your viewers that you're reporting things honestly and factually. And those dinners aren't don't come across that way. I've gone to those dinners and had a perfectly fine time. And honestly, I kind of use it to my as a source building exercise. I've met some people who have become really good sources of mine over the years uh, by interacting with them for the first time there and staying in touch with them. So I use it actually for a reporting reason. Um, uh, but, you know, you can't, you know, for, for a casual viewer watching it, they may not view it that way. I understand that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. You, your take as well, Abby, same? You know, I um, I'm not a huge fan of many of these dinners for a number of reasons, but I understand the value of them in some ways. I think actually it's okay to create a venue for um, people across party lines to interact with each other because in some cases actually, um, you know, it's not just about sources or politicians interacting with journalists, sometimes they're interacting with each other on, you know, Republicans and Democrats interacting with each other in the context of these dinners. That is okay to me. Um, I think the, the place that I think this gets a little tricky, and this is where um, the correspondence dinner has had some rough times in the, in the Trump years, is um, the, the comedian or the, um, the entertainment for the evening. And what is the purpose of that entertainment? Is it to roast the president? Is it to praise the president? You know, I think that that is where things get really tough. And um, I don't mind the president of either party showing up at a dinner and having a glass of champagne to um, the free press, that's fine. Um, but I think that thinking about what the purpose of the dinner is and especially things like roasts and the kind of entertainment that maybe, you know, you know, decades ago seemed harmless. I think we just have to rethink it in this era and make sure it's serving a real purpose. Um, I don't want to say, you know, no correspondence dinner. I just think that that's been one of the trickier parts of the whole, of the whole thing. And um, last year we had, um, we had the historian, um, my brain's not working, but it was it was actually quite good. Um, was, John, John Meacham. Wasn't John it? Meacham. It was totally yeah. something totally different. It was it was quite good. Um, it was something that I think um, sort of felt um, you know appropriate for the evening, and I think it was something that you know perhaps the you know the White House team would have felt comfortable being there for. And this is not necessarily about their comfort, but just you know we don't want this to be like a Hollywood session where you're like ribbing one party that you don't like and and lauding a party that you do like. I just think that doesn't serve any sort of journalistic purpose. Yeah. Uh, and we need to kind of get back to the basics on that. Yeah. So um, I have a question in the Q&A, um, which is a topic I was going to get to, which is uh, the question of, there are two, two or three questions that sort of get intertwined. One is investigate or pardon uh, or stop investigating President Trump and his, as in, and his, in, his inner circle when, when they leave office. And then the question of pardons by the president, the preemptive pardon. So let's, let's take first the question of what are you hearing is the, the, your personal take, but also what are you hearing about the mood around the investigation of the president and his inner circle uh, when he, when he leaves, Nick, we could talk the equities of both sides a bit. Um, just, I would say just, you know, I think there is not much appetite uh, among the Biden team to continue the investigations uh, into the president, um, you know, whether it be um, in the Southern District of New York or the Michael Cohen case, where the president was implicated in that case. Um, you know, even if the president deserves it, I think that the concern is that the that he will look like he's going after his predecessor and potential future competitor in 2024 and I think those are the complicated things that they have to be uh, that they are certainly aware of especially when Biden's you know mantra right now is he needs wants to unite the country so and that kind of investigation into Trump will be sort of as a daily distraction so 
you know, that makes me, but you know, a lot of this stuff is not in under his jurisdiction. Right. I mean, as we know, the Manhattan DA is investigating Trump organization, which is, could, certainly could pull in the president. So, you know, well, you know, that is part of it too. I think the, it'll be a big question for whoever the president picks as attorney general, um, you know, and we'll see how they answer that question. Um, you know, uh, when they get during the confirmation proceedings and on the house side, I think the Democrats, there's probably some leftover investigations that they will continue, including trying to bring in Don McGahn to testify in the house judiciary committee, the former white house counsel. But I, I think that's going to really, you know, die out and they're going to try not to make it a Trump show in the house. I think they, they want to move on and they think that's a distraction. Yeah, remember, and Abby, to, to in follow-up, remember in a May town hall meeting, Biden was asked, are you going to pull up President Ford, meaning President Ford uh, pardoned uh, Richard Nixon? He said, are you going to do that? And he said um, that he makes a pledge not to do it. His quote is, it's hands off completely. The Attorney General of the United States is not the president's lawyer. It's the people's lawyer. And whatever they want to do, they will do. Um, not not so clear how that plays out, and it's not so clear with Hunter Biden now being under investigation. Uh, you know how, how those things play out in tandem. Will the Senate be investigating Hunter? The House invent, investigating uh, uh, the Trump people, and and then the next thing we know, it's 2022, and we've not done anything but investigate people. Yeah, I mean, you know, it will be interesting to see if, um, if in fact, the Senate is in Republican hands, but if they choose to also go after Hunter Biden, if the DOJ is already doing it. And uh, because we know that the that the U.S. Attorney's Office in Delaware has launched an investigation. It's been ongoing for some time. So um, it does seem... I have some questions about whether um, Senate Republicans would want to do that, but it's entirely possible that they would. Um, just in the same way that I think Democrats didn't sort of hesitate to do their own investigation, even though the special counsel was doing an investigation into Russian interference. Um, I think that um, Biden's pledge on not pardoning Trump is secondary now to whether Trump will just go ahead and pardon himself. <laughs> and I think um, it's definitely a possibility. I mean, there's a lot of pardon chatter um, among Republicans, you know, talking to sources. It's, um, it is far and wide. The, um, the scope of the types of pardons that they're considering over at the White House is pretty breathtaking when you um, think about it. And part of that has to do with the fact that they are explicitly um, basically telling people don't even bother with the normal pardon process. This is all going through the White House Counsel's Office and people all over the map, um, not just people who are friends of the president's or family members of the president's are clamoring for pardons. And I think President Trump is in a mood where he wants to do as much as he can with the power that he has. And there's no power that is more unilateral and unchecked than the pardon power. So, um, you know, I think all things are possible in that terrain. I don't think anybody really knows what he's going to do, but um, don't be surprised because I think that under there are a lot of things under consideration and it all at the end of the day comes down to President Trump and what he feels like doing. I'm not sure. I mean, I think the only problem with pardoning himself is sort of this implication of guilt. And I think he is sensitive to that to some extent, as much as he thinks that he's being... Um, he's like on the receiving end of some kind of witch hunt. I think he is sensitive about seeming as if he's admitting that he did something wrong. For me, the, the thing that I'm going to keep my eye on most is the president and the intelligence community has been sort of at a, a, a slow war over the, from, from the time that the Steele dossier first surfaced and he felt that he was being set up through um, till today. And so what I have my eyes open on and I look to, hear from you guys uh, down the line is what's he going to do with Julian Assange and Edward Snowden? Mm -hmm. Because those are, those are two very interesting pardon possibilities, way more interesting to me than Don Jr. or, or Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Uh, and are you hearing anything about either of those guys in, in, in pardons? I mean, I mean, I think those names have been out there. I think that that would create an uproar uh, if uh, either Snowden or Assange got 
uh, a pardon from both sides. A lot of Republicans, even Lindsey Graham, has uh, been warning against uh, such pardons. Um, so, you know, the president tends to even agree, doesn't really care among the, about causing an uproar. So who really knows? You know, it could be something he does in the last day of office. Uh, so, but, you know, that's certainly chatter that's been out there. And for what it's worth, I mean, I think people in the White House have been kind of downplaying those possibilities. But again, I mean, the big caveat is like, right now, people in the White House are at the mercy of the president. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you can wake up one morning. You can wait, yeah. Wait like, that he's pardoning them. So yeah. it's really, it's really entirely up to him. And they know, they don't know ultimately what he's going to do. So that's kind of the perspective that they come from. Yeah. So two, two sort of last categories of question, and then uh, I have to let you guys go back to your, your real life. The, the first one is private citizen Trump. So in the run-up to the um, election of President Trump in 2016, there was story after story about how the media gave him so much wall-to-wall free coverage. He was, you know, after all, private citizen running for president, but that we, we gave him a lot of, uh, the media gave him a lot of, of coverage. Now, fast forward to him being former President Trump with a $250 million war chest that he's raised um, uh, in recent days. I don't expect he's a Dylan Thomas fan. I don't think he's going to go quietly into the good night and he's going to be here uh, and a force. And, and I was wondering, what are you guys talking about, if, if you can talk to us about it behind the curtain at, at uh, CNN, about what amount of airtime does he get? How do you cover former President Trump if he's going about, you know, sort of following the same pattern that he's doing now, rallies and uh, speeches and misinformation and, and, and the like? What do you do about that? How do you cover it? Should you cover it at all? Um, I don't think that we're going to be giving it as much attention as if he were president. I think that, like, you know, if he does something newsworthy, we cover it. If he doesn't do anything, if he's just tweeting a bunch of crazy stuff, um, it doesn't necessarily merit news coverage. Um, I think that he will be treated uh, as a former president, as certainly someone you can't ignore, someone who's will be a prominent figure in the Republican Party. Uh, but, you know, the country will be moving on. We'll be in a new administration. Uh, then he won't be driving the news. He'll be reacting to the news. And, you know, so I think it'll be a, you know, he will be much less of a Trump-focused um, news coverage. I think on all fronts, I think we'll probably, CNN, I'm sure others uh, well, well will probably be very similar. So I think you'll start to see that fade over time. And I'm not even convinced he's going to run again in 2024. So, you know, we'll, we'll just have to see. If he becomes a candidate in 2024, then I'm sure you'll get more coverage then. But I, I sense it'll sort of peter out over some time here. Yeah, I guess the question, though, Abby, is if he's going to be holding these mass rallies uh, starting on the 21st of January and running straight through, uh, did, does the media have it within itself to um, sort of resist uh, coverage? I, I think I think that the media does have it within itself to resist coverage. I mean, I think um, the newsworthiness of a former president holding rallies and claiming that he may or may not run for president is is just you know within the scope of the challenges facing the country and a new administration. It just does not rise to the level. So, I I, I have no doubt that it will be actually fairly easy for people to take a step back from that. I mean. That, that's not to say that like Newsmax or Fox News will do will do that because I think Trump remains the lifeblood of conservative media. But I think for most um, mainstream outlets, uh, we have to shift to covering a new president and covering um, the challenges of the day and not just um, a lot of political bluster, which is really all it's going to be. I mean, the president's comments at a rally are not um, of any note at all when it comes to real things that are happening in people's lives. Yeah, and we'll, and we'll see. I, I know uh, it's been reported that MSNBC has a new um, incoming president. Uh, there's a talk about whether Jeff Zucker um, will, will leave CNN and, and, and take on a, ne- a next phase of his life. And that'll mean new teams of, of people coming in to decide what, what is newsworthy. 
And um, I think it's going to be a challenge. I'm not so convinced that people are going to be able to resist um, the, the coverage. And, and so we'll, we'll see how it goes. So la- last question for, for both of you. Abby, you, you've said um, that the country wants two things, politics to be less front and center in their lives and the government to do things it's supposed to do. Uh, as you look you know, to the future, short term, medium term, longer term, how, how do you think those things get accomplished from, from your perch? And then Manu, the same thing from your congressional side. How, how, does we, how do we get politics less front and center in our lives and the government doing things that we need them to do? I think it's pretty straightforward. I think when the government is um, operating fairly normally, it's actually usually pretty boring. <laughs> and, um, and I think that it will recede from people's day-to-day lives. They won't wake up in the morning thinking about what crazy thing happened yesterday. Um, so it, it's about the normal functioning of government and some of the more mundane um, things that happen. Um, even the fights on Capitol Hill be, are are a process that is a normal process and it is okay for them to happen. And I think people are, um, they're waiting for things to be, um, to, to go along um, certain rules. You know what I mean? Like one of the problems with the Trump era is that it was so unpredictable. You never knew when he would wake up and say, Oh, I don't like this or I don't like that. Um, I think what, what normally happens on Capitol Hill is that you have the two camps. They're coming at it from ideologically different perspectives. Um, they negotiate and they fight and then they come to some kind of compromise. I think when we are back to that, um, it will be uh, a boring day in Washington. And a lot of people frankly want that. Um, you know, that people want to be able to go to a dinner and talk about something that is not Donald Trump. So um, I think that will happen inevitably, because if you look at Biden's nominees, they are, um, I like to call them technocrats, because I think that's really what they are. They are people who are um, sort of administrative masters, by and large. Um, They're not personalities. They're not um, ideologues, by and large. Um, and uh, they're, they're going to run this government probably in a fairly boring fashion. And I think that's exactly the way that the Biden administration wants it. And Manu, do, does, does it get to run? That is, does, assuming Leader McConnell is still Leader McConnell, and I think it is different if he has a two-vote majority or a one-vote vote majority. With a one vote majority, he's got to worry about Mitt Romney. Um, uh, if With a two, he's got to worry about Mitt Romney, Susan Murkowski, uh, Susan Collins, and, and Lisa Murkowski. Is, but if, so if, if he's in charge, when he was in charge of uh, the Senate under Obama, he, he was pretty obstructionist. He has a better relationship with Biden. They've worked together for a long, long time. Do you see it? Abby says things are going to get back to normal and people are just going to grind out the daily things that, that America needs. From, from where you sit on Capitol Hill, how do you see that playing out um, with the majorities that of one seat, two seat, um, no seat we don't have to worry about? Yeah, then- well, yeah, you know, every seat is so significant in the Senate for that very reason, because any defection can make things much more difficult. Now, even if McConnell's in charge of the 5149 Senate and Mitt Romney is a concern or Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski, McConnell still decides what comes to the floor. He decides what nominees to schedule for a vote, decides what bills to put on the floor. And it will be a very interesting dynamic to watch to see how McConnell prioritizes Biden's agenda. Does he put people, does he move quickly on the Biden nominees? Does he slow walk the ones he doesn't like? Uh, does he move to fill vacancies in the judgeships, which he's been doing at a rapid pace uh, for uh, President Trump? Uh, or does he put his foot on the brakes on that? Uh, those are all going to be, you know, regardless if it's a 52-48 Senate or 51-49 Senate, he will make that decision about what to bring to the floor. And if he's concerned about the vote that he may lose, he's not going to have that vote. He's not going to schedule a vote. Now, each senator has leverage to force something if they don't hold on on something that McConnell wants uh, to try to get their way on something. So that will play out in a case-by-case 
basis. Um, uh, but you know, that will, that will essentially be going back as Abby said, to kind of how the way, you know, the Senate, uh, versus the white house kind of used to operate in, in an adversarial way when it's an opposing party, maybe at times cutting deals when they have to, um, and probably off more often than not, not being able to get something done and the two sides being at loggerheads and trading the familiar, familiar political jabs at each other. I mean, that's, all part of the legislative process and the way Washington operates. So I think that they'll be able to work together at time to time. And I think that a lot of times they'll be at odds. But you know, once they get through this relief deal, the next thing is going to be what can they agree to more? And that's going to be a fight. And that's going to be a big question. And the big question, too, will be can he get all his nominees through and at what pace? And a lot of that will be determined by Mitch McConnell. Yeah. And, and I take it you don't, I was asked a question in, in, in the chat earlier. Is there any realistic possibility on a 40, on a 59, 51-49 vote that somebody like um, Mitt Romney decides to leave the Republican Party and, and become an independent caucus with the Democrat? No, not, not, a, not a chance. And people say, well, what about Joe Manchin? Will he flip to the Republican side? No, not a chance. And that is a death knell for any, uh, any member to do uh, for the most part. And well, look what Justin Amash, he left the Republican Party. He's not didn't run for re-election. You know, the only exception being Jeff Van Drew of New Jersey, who switched parties and won as a Republican in his seat in that conservative-leaning district after opposing impeachment. So, but rarely, rarely is that a recipe for success. So, so final thoughts, Abby. What, what do you, what do you got your eye on um, upcoming? And Manu, what, what stories are you? mostly want us to us recipients of the news what do you, what do you want us to be looking at i think um we're just you know i mean the, we're, we have a new administration coming in i think the politics are completely uncertain around that and we just have to keep an eye on um you know how things shake out um on the republican side and on the democratic side but i think especially as republicans try to navigate how much um they want to be beholden to the outgoing president as a new administration is coming in and how that affects how much Joe Biden is going to be able to get done. Manu, what, yeah. what, what are you looking at? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Georgia runoff races are going to make it have a big say in how the next two years goes. Um, I think that I'm going to also be looking at, you know, I don't know, no one wants to think about the campaigns being so fresh off campaign season. and um, But look, the House majority is at risk of flipping back to the Republicans. And if you're a Democrat, you have to be concerned about it. And if you're a Republican, you're thinking you have a real good, serious shot of taking the majority next Congress. So um, in the Congress after the, the coming one. So that is the 2022 midterms is going to be hugely contested. The Senate could flip regardless of what happens in Georgia. The House could flip. Oftentimes it's not good for the president of his own party usually suffers losses in the first midterm in his first midterm. So we'll see, but that's really going to, you know, we don't want to think about the campaigns, but that's really going to be driving a lot of the decision-making on Capitol Hill. Abby and Manu, thank you so much for um, instructing us through this conversation today. You've both been terrific. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having us. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music is by Sam Post. Let us know if you have any thoughts. Write to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.